You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis 29, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 31, and uh, this is right in the middle of what I consider the Jacob saga. And in my mind, that's the way I view this, because everywhere Jacob went, drama went with him. And uh, we'll see this this morning. uh, Genesis 29, we'll begin reading in verse 31, and this is after Jacob and Leah have been married. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing And there's a lot in this text to go through and unpack, but I couldn't really get away from what Leah was thinking in her mind and the way that she named her sons here because there's a lot going on in her heart right here. And it's something that I think we deal with as well in that it's possible in our lives to live our lives not realizing that we're aiming for the wrong target. It's easy to get busy doing what we're doing for a person or for a a possession or for a job or for a career or for finances and forget that we really only live before one. And if we we aim at the wrong target, we'll live miserable lives. So I want to look at that thought very simply today, this morning, and, and then get into God's word. Let's pray and ask him to help us. As we open his word, Father, we love you, we need you. Uh, your word is, is really all we need. All we could do this morning is read it, and, and it has the power, Lord, to help us. And I pray that you'd help me to convey some things here uh, that aren't my thoughts, but thoughts that you want us to have. Lord, help us and open our hearts, help us to have hearts ready to hear. It changes this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I remember, and I've used this illustration before, but it applies to so many areas. I remember um, in 2004 at the Athens Olympics, there was an American rifle shooter named Matt Emmons. And uh, he was one of the best shooters in the world. Um, He is in the Olympics in 2004. He had gone through the competition that he he excelled at. And before his his last attempt, he was in first place. And so Matt Emmons lined up to shoot. All he had to do was have an average score on his last shot to win the gold medal for the Americans. So he lined up his rifle, aimed it at the target, pulled the trigger, and hit a bullseye. And as he was expecting to celebrate and be happy, 
um, of his accomplishments, um, he heard word, he heard a rumbling begin and realized that the judges had awarded him no points at all. So he's scratching his head saying, well, what's the deal? I hit the target. I was in first place. I did everything I needed to do to win first place, except amid the confusion and maybe amid the excitement, knowing he had one shot to take, he had aimed his rifle at the wrong target. And his mistake cost him a gold medal. He eventually finished in eighth place. No medal, no podium, no national anthem, just regret. And it's really a perfect example and illustration of how some people live their lives aiming at the wrong, at the wrong target. And they do everything they're supposed to do. They look the part. They, they act the part. It looks like they're doing what they ought to do. Only in their minds and in their hearts, they're living for lesser things. And at the end of a life like that, there will be no reward to show for it. Genesis 29 is about someone who spent at least part of her life aiming for the wrong target. And as we come to this part of the story, we learned last week that Jacob and Leah had been married under some we'll say, unique circumstances. Jacob had gone to Haran uh, to be with his family because of his poor decisions. He left home and went 500 miles away and comes to the place where his uncle lives, his uncle Laban, and eventually moves in with the family, begins working for Laban. And Laban has two daughters. One of his daughters' name is Rachel, and the Bible says that Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. The other daughter's name is Leah. The Bible says that she was tender-eyed. And we don't know if that means that she had an issue with her eyes or she just wasn't as attractive as Rachel was. I don't want to make a big deal or a big point out of that today because that's not really the point of the text. But we, what we do know is that Jacob loved Rachel. He fell in love with her. I mean, almost at first sight, he loved Rachel. So he goes to Laban and he says, I love Rachel. If you'll let me marry her, I will serve you for seven years. I'll give my life to your whatever you want from me for seven years. If you'll let me marry Rachel. And Laban, he agrees with that. And in the Hallmark movie quote of the week, in verse 20, Jacob says this very, uh, very um, romantic sounding. Uh, there's a romantic sounding verse that says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed unto him. But a few days for the love he had to her. And I just think it's the sovereignty of God that we read that verse the day before Valentine's Day. So we'll move on. Hopefully you guys remember what tomorrow is, by the way. He loved Rachel. He loved her so much that serving seven years for her seemed like just a few days. I mean, he's excited about marrying her. After seven years, he goes to Laban and says, my time has been served. Let me marry Rachel. And Laban says, okay, great, let's have a feast. So they throw a party. They, they're having a wedding. And on the night of the wedding, Laban pulls a fast one on Jacob. In the dark, in the tent, with the veil, whatever is happening, somehow he sends Leah instead of Rachel into the tent, hidden under her veil in the dark of night, and Jacob somehow doesn't realize it until the next morning that he marries the other sister. So he obviously wakes up and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And he, so he gets up, goes out of the tent, confronts Laban for his deception. And Laban says, well, Leah's the oldest in our country. Oldest daughter marries first, no matter what. 
and very nonchalantly and very casually, we see Laban's response to Jacob. And we see that Jacob doesn't say much after because as we heard last week, the boomerang returned. Because Jacob had been deceptive. Jacob was a schemer. Jacob was the conniver. He was the one always pulling a fast one on everyone else. And I believe in that moment he knew that he got what was coming to him. So Jacob is still allowed to marry Rachel. But he has to serve seven more years. And and the wording here makes it clear that they didn't wait till the seven years was up to actually become married. So now Jacob is married to Rachel and Leah. And I just have to say this at the beginning, that a story like this reveals the wisdom of God when he said in Genesis chapter 2 that a man shall leave his parents and cleave unto his wife, not wives. And just because God's family here is engaged in this act of polygamy or multiple wives, it may have been more culturally acceptable then. But, but God's plan is one man and one woman for life. And we see the heartache that the, this arrangement causes. And, and you say, well, but it sounds like everything is going to turn out great. I mean, he's married to Rachel. He's married to Leah. Everything's good. It's happily ever after. And, and to that I say, you either haven't read this chapter or you've never been around sisters before. Because the drama is just unfolding. I have four daughters. I feel like I could say that, okay? Verse 30, it says, And he went in also unto Rachel and Jacob. He loved also Rachel more than Leah and served with him yet seven other years. There's already an issue in that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and it's apparent. He's not trying to hide it. It's obvious to everyone. And many believe in verse 31 when it says, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, it says, many believe that's a relative term or a comparative term in the same way that Jesus in the Gospels said that if any man come after me and hate not his father and mother. It's not that Jesus was saying you must hate your father and your mother and your family. He was saying, though, that your love for me must be so strong that your love for everything else is that secondary. And so most people believe when it says that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that it's not so much that Leah was hated as much as it was that Jacob's love for Rachel so far outmatched his love for Leah that it made his love for Leah look like hatred. Now, even if there was some hatred, what I appreciate here is that the Lord is aware of Leah's situation. The Lord sees Leah and he sees that she's unwanted and he sees that she's unloved and he doesn't turn his face from her. Now this is a great point and it comes back later that God gets a bad rap for being so hard and being so judgmental. But in situations like this, it is apparent to me that God is more compassionate than I am. And who am I to judge a God who knows everything and sees everything and even in the midst of this trial for Leah, he sees her and, he's, and he hears her, her prayers and he loves her and he opens her womb, the Bible says. He, he, he begins this important process of Jacob having sons. And the reason that this passage can get so involved and the reason I'm not going on to the chapter 30 is because this, this also gives us the first look into the tribes of Israel. 
So we know that Jacob is the man for, through whom God is going to bless and, and have his covenant pass through. And, and so he has these 12 sons, and these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now remember, the people reading this account, the very first people reading this from the, from the pen of Moses were the children of Israel as they, were, they exited the, the nation of the country of Egypt. They're traveling in the wilderness and they're about to enter into the promised land. They're the ones reading this. So this is important for them as they're reading the origins of their tribes because you have these Jews that are from the different tribes and they're reading exactly how those tribes came to be. This is important. This would be like you and I getting on a, a, our family tree and seeing who our family was and what names go back. This, was, this would have mattered for them. It was important for them to see these things. It's a first look at Jacob's son. The sad thing, though, is this. This is God's plan for his kingdom to, to pr be promoted and to, be, and, and to have an impact on all the earth, to bless all the earth. And yet we see this chosen family interacting with each other in such a carnal way. And you'd think that this family, of all families, would operate on a different level. But dysfunction just really is all through their interactions with each other. It's amazing how dysfunctionally this family is operating. And it's really not a glorious beginning for the nation of Israel. You've got one man. You eventually have four women. You have a spirit of angst. You have a spirit of competition. That kind of sums it all up. So our focus this morning won't be so much on the sons of Jacob as it will be the wives of Jacob. And specifically today, I want to look at Leah. Because Lord willing, maybe next time we'll look at Rachel. But you can tell a lot about their spirit based on what they named their sons. And if you'll bear with me, I know this is a lot to get through. But by the time we tie it together, I think that you'll appreciate the truth here. Let's look at the names of Leah's babies. Look at verse first in verse 32. It says, And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. Now the first son, Jacob's first son, they name him Reuben, and it literally means, Behold, a son. Behold, a son. So, you know, names back then meant something, and, and sometimes it was actually the definition of the word. Sometimes it was a play on how the word sounded. But Reuben means behold a son. And here's the reason that she named him that. She said, his name is Reuben. For she said, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. Do you start to see what's going through Leah's mind here? Her first son is born and she says, I want to name him Reuben. Because the Lord has seen my trouble and blessed me with a son. But I want my, my, my husband to see, look, behold, a son. Behold, Jacob, look. Look what, look what happened. We had a son. I, I gave you a son, behold. And we know that her motive was this, that maybe Jacob, maybe just somehow, and the fact that she has a son, Jacob will say, well, okay, I love you. That's her motive. Well, obviously it doesn't work because look at verse 33. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard, I was hated. He hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name 
Simeon. And the name Simeon means hearing because the Lord hath heard, she says. The Lord hath heard that I am unloved and he gave me another son. Look at the next verse. Verse 34, and she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name uh, was called Levi. And so Levi means attached. It means together. And what she's saying here is maybe now that I have three sons, my husband will finally become attached to me. I mean, Reuben, behold a son. I mean, do you see I've borne you a son? Please love me. I mean, Simeon, God heard that I was hated. Here's another son, Jacob. Uh, it, she goes to Levi. Levi is, means attached or connected. And maybe, maybe, Jacob, you'll see that I have got now a third son. Will you just love me? Attach yourself to me. Just, just have affection for me. Can we have a connection? Do you start to get the idea of what Leah's thinking? She's doing everything she's doing to earn the love of her husband. To get him to pay attention. And she has a fourth son and she names him Praise. And we'll look at that later. But after Leah had her babies, you know, it's not done. The drama's not over. We'll look at this next time. But Rachel gets into the act and she gives her handmaid Bilhah to Jacob. And he has two, two sons with her. And that's Dan and Naphtali. And then after Rachel's handmaid, there's two more sons. Uh, you know, they have two sons. Then Leah gives her handmaid to Jacob, Zilpah. And they have Gad and Asher. And then Leah gets back involved in it. And she has Issachar and Zebulun, and they have a daughter, Dinah, and then finally God blesses Rachel, and she has children, she has Joseph and Benjamin, and you have, here we are, this mess, the glorious origins of the tribes of Israel. I mean, God's people, I mean, not really an impressive beginning at all. The whole thing feels to me like a card game. Rachel says, I bid one wife loved and beautiful. Leah says, I bid one wife four sons. Rachel says, I'll match your one wife and raise you a concubine and my two sons by her. And Leah says, I'll raise you another concubine and two sons by her plus a daughter. And then I'll throw in a, a, a daughter and I'll roll with this hand because I've got one wife, a concubine, six sons, one daughter. That's a winning hand. Doesn't it feel like that to you? And you'd think it was a winning hand, but there's no winner in this competition. See, there's a lot of wrong thinking going on. And, the, and, the, and making, the naming of their sons gives us the glimpse. Reuben, behold a son, Jacob. Love me. Simeon, God heard me. He heard that I was hated. Look, another son. Levi, uh, attached. Please attach yourself to me. I've given you now three sons. You can hear the pain in the names. She just wanted to be loved. She just wanted her husband's affection. And, and this is where the transition is made. So please pay attention. It's not a bad thing for a wife or a husband to love their spouse so much that they're willing to sacrifice and give of themselves to be a blessing to each other. That's a good thing. But that's not what happen, what's happening here. 
See, this is, she's, she's not trying to give herself the sacrificial love and be a blessing. No, she's seeking to define her life based on how her husband views her. What I'm not saying is that you shouldn't care what people think about you. Uh, you, you should. Your name means something. You have a testimony of, of, of kindness and grace and patience. You should. It should matter to you how others view you. But what I, what, what I am saying is the balance of that is that's different than living to please somebody else. And Leah is living to please her husband. The definition of her life is being defined by what her husband, how her husband views her. Leah's problem was not a spirit of service. Leah was living to make Jacob happy. She was seeking approval from Jacob, not the Lord. And when you live to please others, you'll find yourself doing things in a way you never thought you would. I mean, Leah's having children, but not because they're a gift from God. Not because God said be fruitful and multiply. Not because God had blessed her and made her fruitful. No, Leah's having children because she hoped in some way that it would make her husband love her. See, Leah's aiming for the wrong target. See, the danger of aiming for the wrong target is first, it changes our motives. See, we're told to follow God because we love God. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind. And our motive for serving, pay attention here because these transitions are important. Our motive for serving and following and worshiping is because we love the Lord. But it is possible for people to become big and God to become small. And when that happens, we find ourselves doing what we do not because we love God, but because we want approval. And it can happen all the time, and it can happen at home. You know, our motive in marriage can become spouse-focused rather than God-focused. And spouses, we can contribute to this. If you're the kind of person that can't be pleased with anything that your spouse does, shame on you. Husbands and wives, be careful of this. Because it's easy for one spouse or the other spouse to look at their spouse and say, well, that's not good enough. And create this angst in your spouse and your partner that makes them think they'll never be good enough. And they try and try and try, but there's no affirmation, there's no help, and they think, I'll never be good enough. That's not the kind of selfless, loving, gracious marriage that God intended. Marriage is about sacrifice. It's a covenant with God. It's not a contract between two people. If you fulfill your end of the bargain, then I'll fulfill my end of the bargain. That's how marriage is in our culture now. It's a contract. No, but according to the Bible, marriage is a covenant. You make a covenant with God. It doesn't matter if the other person fulfills their end of the, of the contract or not because you made a vow before God. We are married before God. In our marriages, we live for God. We do what we do because we've made a covenant with God and God alone. Now, I'm not saying that that's, the other spouse has no responsibility. Both of them are 100% have responsibility to contribute to that marriage. But don't put your spouse in a position where they feel they have to measure up. But it happens in homes. Husbands make it clear that they're not happy with the house or the food or the way things are operating or this or that. And a wife feels like she just can't measure up. And wives do this thing called nagging. Not my wife, but some wives I've heard do this. 
Things need to get done by a busy husband. And wife feels like he drags his feet. He feels like he can't do anything right. Listen, it's hard enough to stay motivated for the right reasons. Let's not make it harder on each other by creating a home where no one can ever be happy. Our motive in marriage is love for God. Doing things his way. Fulfilling a covenant that we made with him. Living to please each other instead of pleasing God will lead to an empty marriage. This can also happen in serving God. You know, if our motive is other people, serving can become performance-based. Giving can become an exercise in pride. Busyness helps us feel more valuable. No, the, the Pharisees used prayer and fasting as a way to get attention. And they did what they did to be seen of men. And Jesus said what? He said, you're gonna, you have all the reward you're ever going to get. But our love for God should fuel our desire to serve him. Jesus spent a good part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 reminding us that we do what we do for God, not for men. Paul said in Galatians 1, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if yet I pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. And what Paul is saying is this, If you live for others, Paul said you're the servant of men, not Christ. Who are you aiming to please in life? Do you live to please God? Listen, if you live to please God, if he's your focus, if he's your motivation, you're going to be a blessing to other people the way you should. Uh, if we aim to please God, we'll be the right kinds of husbands and wives. If we aim to please God, we'll be the right kind of employees. We'll be the right kind of church members. We'll be the right kind of citizens. Aiming to please God also helps us not be defined by our situation or our circumstances. In that, you know, because some people, you know, it, they, they look at their situation or their circumstance in life and say, they say, well, I'm, I'm single and so that's what defines me. And it limits me. Well, listen, embrace the fact that you're single. I mean, do what you need to about it. But, but embrace the fact that God has you in this position right now on purpose for a reason. And he wants to use you single. Amen. See, if, if we just define ourselves by the labels we have, then we won't ever take a step and start serving God because we think our situation has to change before I can do anything to make a difference. Well, no. If you simply just what you're doing right now, you stop and you look to God and say, I will aim to please God. As a single person, God can use you. In our culture, it's increasingly more and more common for people to be divorced. And sometimes people that are divorced think, well, God is limited in how he can use me. Listen, you can't go back and change the past. But from this day forward, you can say, I'm aiming to please God. And he can use you however he wants to use you. There may be some limitations or there may be some things that, that, that you aren't able to do like you could have done. But there's no reason for you to throw in the towel just because of that label on your life. Some of us have had failures. And you think that failure defines me and that's my label now. No, stop living based on what everyone thinks about you. And look to heaven and say, God, what do you want me to do? I will serve you. I'll do my best for you. I'm aiming to please you. I don't care. Really, I do care what people think about me because I want a good testimony. But in the end, I'm, I cannot let people drive what I do or how I do it. I am aiming to please God and God alone. 
Whatever labels you carry around in your life, don't let them hinder you. If you just simply aim to please God, he can use you. I'm telling you, it's true. You live for an audience of one. He's your target. Paul said in Colossians 3, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. You have one focus, you have one audience, and that is God. He then goes on and applies it to wives and husbands and children and, and uh, fathers and employees. And he says, everything you do, every role you have in life, if you would simply aim to please God, then you will have a life that ends well. Because he closes that chapter by saying this, Colossians 3, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. Living for others changes our motives. It'll change how we do things. It'll change what our reason for, for living is. If we live aiming for the wrong target, someday the Bible says we'll stand before Christ and have nothing to show for it. In that same passage, Colossians 3, he said, But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. So the danger of aiming for the wrong target, number one, it changes our motives. And motives matter to God. The reason you do what you do matters to God. But the second danger in aiming for the wrong target is this. It's dangerous because people change. What I mean is living to please other people is impossible. Because people change all the time. See, you can do all you can to make somebody happy. But in the end, if their mood shifts. Or they change their minds about something. What makes them happy you're going to pull your hair out. Uh, it, the only illustration I can think of is driving. I don't know why all my illustrations are driving lately, but I have not gotten pulled over in a while. But what if just every few minutes, the city of Sioux Falls implements this new rule, and they say every few minutes when we feel like it, we're going to push a bu button back at headquarters. I don't even know if there's a headquarters for this. But back at headquarters, we're going to push a button and we're going to change the speed limit randomly. So, you know, you're going 45 and a 55 because no one else is going the speed limit. No, you're going 45 and it's a 45 mile an hour zone. And suddenly, just like that, somebody, some evil person back at headquarters pushes the button. Boop. And now the speed limit is 25. But you're going 45 and there happens to be a policeman parked right there. And as soon as the speed limit changes, this is the way it would be for me, okay? As soon as the speed limit changes, he has his gun on you, his radar, and he zaps you going 25, 45 into 25. Pulls you over and gives you a $150 ticket. And you're saying, it just changed. You know how, how frustrating that would be? Well, really, in many ways, that's what it's like to live to please people. Because if your motive is to make everybody else happy, listen, I know myself, and sometimes my days are like this. And I know how we can be, and sometimes I feel like it, sometimes I don't, sometimes my mood changes, sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm not. Listen, Jacob couldn't be pleased with Leah. He didn't love her. Uh, he loved Rachel. She was never going to be able to do enough for him. 
people waver too much. And what Paul said in Colossians should give us actually confidence that pleasing God is the best and only way to live because he said, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive of the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the Lord Christ. You know what Paul is saying? And this is my favorite point. We're getting down to it. If you serve the Lord, you will receive a reward. And you know what he's really saying? He's saying this. It's possible to please God. And this is mind-blowing to me. See, here's a holy God who sits on the throne of heaven and he created the heavens and the earth. He is sinless and he is perfect and he has never failed. But he says, it's possible to please me. And if we serve him with the right motives, we will be rewarded in heaven, he says. I, he did also say, he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there's no respect of persons. And if we don't live for the right reasons, we'll be judged for that. But God treats everybody the same. This standard is for everybody. Jacob didn't treat everyone the same. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, but a holy God in heaven has a standard that doesn't change from person to person. If we operate by faith, this is so encouraging. If I operate by faith, it doesn't matter who I am, it doesn't matter what my label, it doesn't matter what my failure, it doesn't matter what I've done in my past, it doesn't matter how much talent I have, it doesn't matter how much everybody likes me, it doesn't matter if I've produced anything that anyone thinks is valuable. If I, by faith, serve my God by faith and, and simply obedience, then he is not impossible to please. As a matter of fact, he accepts sinners like me. The same is not true if you try to please people. Some people can't be pleased. It's incredible to think that sinful people think that, that their standard is higher than a God who can be pleased. But they are. I mean, some of you work for a boss that can't be pleased. Some of you have a neighbor that cannot be pleased. Some of you have a co-worker that can't be pleased, doesn't matter what. Some of you have a friend, you may have a spouse, you may have a family member that cannot be pleased and their, and their standards change and their moods shift and their preferences waffle and we pull our hair out. But I'm just telling you, this is an encouragement today. God's standard is if you serve with a motive of love for him, he'll be pleased with you. He accepts you. It's true in salvation. See, God has a standard for salvation. That sins be paid for. See, lock in right here. God has a standard for salvation. The standard is that our sins must be paid for. Jesus Christ, his son, came to do that very thing for you on a cross 2,000 years ago. And all we have to do is accept that payment for sins. That's it. That's his standard. And if we do, the Bible says, we are accepted in the beloved. God's family is exclusive and that you can only enter through Jesus Christ, but it's simple and easy to be accepted. All you have to do is repent of your sins and receive Christ's payment by faith. You don't have to earn his love. He, he already loves you. God is holy and he has a standard, but he's not impossible to please because his son satisfied his demands. He will accept you. 
And you say, you don't know my past, Pastor. You don't know what I've done. I'm telling you, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I know that. But listen, it says the wages of sin is death. I know that. But it also says that God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The payment has been made. He will accept you. If he accepted me and he accepted Brother McCrary and, and Jeremy Jacob, if he accepted, I mean, Brother Chad and Brother Heath, and especially Brother Heath, if he accepted, you look around the room, Brother Heath, it's true, if he accepts people like us, he's not going to turn you away. The payment has been satisfied. He paid this for your sins by dying on the cross in your place. He was your substitute. He sacrificed himself for you. Listen, you don't have to earn God's love because you can't. He just loves you. You say it's not possible. Well, we have a picture in this story of God's acceptance. Because he accepted Leah. I mean, when he saw she was hated, he, he's so interested in the down and outs. He wants to work through ones nobody else can be bothered with. And he opened her womb. He looked at her affliction and he had mercy. He saw her right where she was. And his response, his response was not scorn. His response was mercy. The Lord heard that she was hated and he didn't just see her, he heard the cry of her heart. And he hears this at her lowest points. Jacob is just a man and he looked at Leah and he said, no. God's a holy God on his throne. He looked at Leah and he said, yes. After spending her life these years trying to please people and realizing she couldn't, even if, and even if she could, that it wouldn't bring her a sense of satisfaction. Leah had to come to terms with what kind of life mattered the most. There's no fulfillment in pleasing people. You have an issue with your heart that wants to be fulfilled, and you have, a, and you have only one person that can help your heart is the one that created it. And after years of trying to earn the affection of a man, Leah finally realized she could not earn Jacob's love, but she already had the love of someone greater. Because the Lord loved her anyway. The Lord heard that she was ignored, and he gave her affection. The Lord saw the pain of her heart, and he gave her children. See, Leah's life, listen, Leah's life began when she stopped living for a man who couldn't be pleased. And started living for a God who already loved her. That's when her life began. She didn't have to earn it because she couldn't have. She didn't have to be pretty. She probably wasn't. She didn't have to be perfect because that's impossible. She didn't have to avoid mistakes because no one can. No, she simply had to say, you already love me. You've already blessed me. And all you ask is that I turn my attention toward you. And when her fourth son Judah was born, it seems Leah finally got it. Because remember what his name was? Look at verse 35. She conceived again and bare a son and she said, now will I praise the Lord. See, every other child at that point was, oh, husband, love me. Husband, notice me. 
husband, attach yourself to me. Well, after the third child, she finally has a fourth one, and she's not talking about her husband anymore. Now she says, you know what? I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm turning my attention and my focus away from trying to make everybody happy. And I'm just going to look to God. And my, I'm going to say, Lord, I praise you. From now on, you're my focus. From now on, you're my motivation. I just want to please the Lord. I'm not saying she didn't fall back into it. But in this moment, we see a victory in her life. Almost done, but I want you to really lock in. Because there's some stuff here that I want you to get. Think about what God did for tender-eyed Leah. Leah ended up with six sons. No one else had more than two. Leah had Levi. If you know anything about Levi, his descendants became the priests and servants of God in his holy temple. They bore the sins and the praises and the offerings and the music of the Jews into the presence of God. They became intercessors to God on the behalf of the nation of Israel. The Levites did incredible work for God. And as if that's not enough, Leah had a son named Judah. And if you know anything about him, one of his descendants was a baby born in Bethlehem. And raised by a carpenter who grew up. To teach and heal on the shores of, of the Galilee and in Israel in his day. And he eventually was taken into a cross where he died. But he rose again the third day. Amen. And now he's seated on the right hand of the Father. And yes, Jesus, the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Tender-eyed Leah. She may not have looked like much, and she may not have pleased Jacob, and she may not have been the popular sister, but in God's eyes, she was favored, and she was loved, and she got to have a role in the eternal work of a holy God. Jacob may not have ever called Leah wife number one, but God loved her like his favorite. See, the truth is, in God's eyes, we're all the favorite. Like that song, he loves me, he liked I was his only child. And all he requires from us is to love him first. To be motivated to please him by faith and in obedience to his word. Put him first, and if we do, there's a reward waiting. And so, again, almost done. I'm a Baptist preacher, I'm allowed a few different finalies here. You may be tender-eyed. I mean, I don't mean looks. But maybe in your background. You may have something working against you. You may be tender-eyed in your failures. And what people know you've done. You may be tender-eyed in your position. That it's not that impressive. You may be tender-eyed in your station in life. In your situation. You may be tender-eyed in your upbringing. And you may not impress anybody. But there's no respecter of persons with God. And if no one else loves you, but you live for God, he's pleased with you. And if no one else notices your service, but you do it for God, he notices it and he accepts it. And if no one else cares about your struggles, but you maintain your faith and focus on him, he sees you and he hears you. You can live your whole life for people who may not ever accept you, but a holy God who created everything will. 
and you say, I can't earn it, and I say, you're right. Your sins keep you from being qualified. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ died to qualify you. And in salvation, you can trust his finished work. And guess what? God will be pleased. In the Christian life, don't live like you're trying to earn it because you can't. Live for God as if you owe him a debt you could never repay because that's what happened. And let that love drive you to please him. And when you realize that you get to serve a God who gave you everything, the least you'll want to do is live for him in return. So my questions today are simple. Who are you living for? What gets you up in the morning? What motivates you to do what you do? If it's a person, if it's a dollar, if it's a career, if it's attention, if it's glory, if it's to please somebody, if it's to please your boss, if it's to gain some attention from somebody you're trying to get to notice you, if it's to try to keep somebody from being mad at you, then you're doing it all for the wrong reasons. And it's time to shift our focus and live to please the one before whom we will stand one day and either be rewarded for how we lived or judged for how we did not live. Who are you aiming to please? Stop trying to please an unpleasable person and start living for the one who already loves you. I'm going to say it one more time. This is my last finally. Stop living to please the unpleasable. Start living for the one who already loves you. I'm telling you, it's a great life. Amen. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know who, who you are allowing to define what you do with your life. But I'm telling you, there's nobody, there's nobody that can bring you a sense of satisfaction and eternal reward like the God of heaven. If you've been living to please other people, it's time to stop. It's time to shift your focus to the one before whom you'll stand someday. And say, God, I live for you. To the, to the folks in here who you say, I, I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that if I died today, I don't know that I'd spend eternity in heaven. Can I just tell you this? You can know today. Today is the day. Would you, would you be willing to submit yourself to God's word and say, listen, if I died today, I don't know if I died today that I'd be on my way to heaven. But I sure would like to know. I'm not going to force it on anybody. Is there anybody in the room today, just with a real quick raise of your hand, you say, I don't know if I died today, but, but, I, but I would like to know I'm on my way to heaven if I did die today. Is there anybody in the room, just a real quick raise of hand, you'd say, say, that's something I would like to know. I'm looking around the room, just real quick. No obligation, I'll simply pray for you. Looks like everyone in the room today has a public profession of their faith. Okay, so Christian, have you been living for anything other than to please Christ? Does that define you on any level? And if it does, it's time to shift our focus. I'm going to pray. We have a verse of invitation. Brother Samuel will sing. And you have an opportunity to respond. Let's make use of the altars this morning. Father, I love you and we need you to work in us. God, give courage where courage is needed. In Jesus' name, amen.
We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.